0: Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together. I just pray that you open our hearts up to you at the same time. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So one more bonus Advent series sermon based on what we just sang. Hark, listen, the Harald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace. On earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, and with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Good stuff, Maynard. That's good stuff. There's a bunch of good things in there. Charles Wesley knew what he was doing with this. Pointing back to that moment in Luke, where we're told that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, outside of the little Bethlehem keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified, because it's an angel. You're always going to be terrified. It's, they're terrifying things. But this angel said, no, 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 don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I'm sorry, which people? Okay, so all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, And the town of David, not the city of David, that's Jerusalem. This is the suburb, the town of David, Bethlehem, where David was born. Not that that's historically all that crucially. Well, I mean, it is where David was born, and he's a great king. Actually, he's a great king that that came up kind of out of obscurity. And you wouldn't have looked at the young guy and said, oh, that guy's going to be the king. In fact, nobody assumed he would be the king. Okay, so, all right, historically, there's a reason why Bethlehem. And Micah said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But other than that, we don't have a lot of information about Bethlehem. I mean, Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. Uh, there was a Levite from Bethlehem who came to a town, and, and, uh, and they were going to attack him, but his concubine died in his place. Actually, I suppose that is relevant. She died in his place. And then he, he made sure that everybody in Israel was able to have part of her body Galvanize them to justice okay so that actually could theoretically be part of Bethlehem too but other than that about the only other thing that went on in Bethlehem was uh, that's where Naomi was from so when Ruth and Naomi came back they came back there and actually and she's a Moabitess from Moab which is like the worst race that you can be nobody like the Moabites from which is why Ruth says she's a Moabitess from Moab And yet she was able to glean on the edge of the fields because everybody should be able to find bread. And in fact, she got more than she could ever ask or imagine because the guy who would ultimately be their redeemer loved her. Okay, so technically, Bethlehem, there's reasons, okay? There's reasons why Jesus was born in a place called House of Bread, the birthplace of a king that didn't look like a king, who was a redeemer, who gave his life to... Save everybody else. Okay, Bethlehem. Anyway, but it went on. Town of David, and this is the this is the sign that will be for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger in a food trough, not the most majestic birth. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host, remember the, the armies of heaven, appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests not sweetly singing over the plains this is this is an angelic army declaring victory and triumph right god's glory filling the night god's peace comforting the earth god's reconciliation changing humanity his majesty overflowing to everyone but not everybody necessarily wants to see God's glory. Not everyone necessarily rests in God's peace. Not everyone lets themselves be reconciled. Not everyone embraces God's majesty. We can sing about it, but not everybody wants it. The angels don't promise that everybody is going to get this, do they? It's peace on earth, goodwill to men on whom his favor rests. Not everybody necessarily is going to embrace this or accept this. It's just that God has given this to everyone and he wants to save everyone. Peter tells us that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Paul said God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In Romans, he says, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Jesus told Nicodemus that God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's just that whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already. Because he hasn't believed in the name of God's one and only son. He wants everyone to be saved. It's just weird that not everybody is. And that is a logic problem for a guy like me. Because I mean, it, it comes down to ability or willingness. Maybe God's not able to save everybody. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable with that one. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. I'm pretty sure he can do anything. That's not the problem. Maybe God's unwilling. He doesn't want everybody saved. Actually, I just read a whole bunch of verses. God wants everybody saved. We're specifically told that. Maybe it's our ability. Now, it can't be that because we don't have any ability to get saved. Even the people who are saved, it's not from their ability. That's the whole point. So our ability doesn't factor in. So maybe it's our willing. Yeah, it's our willingness. God extends salvation to everybody. God's spirit reaches out to everybody. God says, I want to place in you, a heart to reach back. Here's the faith. Some people go, "Yeah." I mean, Paul even says you can stifle the Spirit, right? So don't do that. There's what God wants, and there's what we are willing to do. But we're told by Charles Wesley, joyful, all ye nations rise. Join this triumph of the skies, and alongside with that angelic army, proclaim that Christ is born in Bethlehem. We want everybody to do this. In Romans, Paul quotes the prophet Joel and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved but then he he follows it up with a basic series of of logical questions that i really appreciate everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved everyone how how then would they call on the one they've never believed in how can they believe in one they've never heard of and how can they hear from some no one's ever preached to them beloved you and i were created just like everyone else on the planet to reflect the image of god right We were created in the Imago Dei. We were created to reflect that. And as Christians, you and I were recreated to consciously, actively reflect that image to all those who don't know anything about him and maybe not even want to. They may not even want to know. Sometimes we'll speak about Christian evangelists. And and that's good, because there are some people who do that professionally, but it's a bit of a misnomer Because there are no Christian evangelists. Well, or better yet, we're all Christian evangelists. There are no evangelists who aren't Christian. There are no Christians who aren't evangelists. Not really. We talked about this last week. All Christians have been given a calling to be ambassadors. So if I'm not being an an evangelist, it's not that I'm not being an evangelist. I am being an evangelist. I'm just doing it badly. But I can't help but be an evangelist. I'm always showing what the gospel means to me. Aren't I? You go, but you didn't say anything. Exactly. But I'm always showing what the gospel means to me. If we pick and choose who gets to hear God's love for us, who gets to feel God's love for us, if we pick and choose who merits the gospel, who merits receiving, who merits hearing the gospel from us, and who doesn't, how how, how will they ever call on him? There's whole swathes of people that aren't already interested. They don't wanna hear it. There are people that you run into that say, I resent the fact that you ever told me that I'm driving toward an abyss. I was driving happily, thank you. And now I'm all stressed. I feel like you're telling me I don't know what I'm doing. There's an abyss, did you know that? No, then you don't know what you're doing. I love you, that's why I'm telling you. God wants everyone to come to repentance, all men to be saved. It's the salvation for everyone who believes. Did God reach out more to some people than others? And you can't even point to Israel. You can't, you can't say, oh, well, well, clearly God cares more about Israel. No, I mean, even then it's always been. It's always been about reaching out to, to everyone. Israel was a remnant that he was building with. But in Isaiah, God told Isaiah, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob to bring back those of Israel that I've already kept. No, no, no. I want to make you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's never just been about one clump of people. Might have had this family they built on and this clan that he worked with and this nation that he built a relationship with, but always so that they could be reaching out to everyone. Even Moabites from Moab, the ends of the earth. would that include include Israel? Would that include Gaza? Everyone, every nation, which humans, which nations, which beloved are more important to God's heart? What about American conservatives? American liberals, absolutely. Why do we even go into this? In October, several hundred conservative pastors uh, signed the evangelical statement in support of Israel. About a week later, several hundred liberal pastors sent a letter decrying Israel and supporting Palestine. I get it, but why on earth? Would our love and support be predicated by which church divide we find ourselves in? That's not the way it should be. It's not the way it should ever have been. Psalm 96 says, sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. How much of the earth? all the earth. Sing to Yahweh, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. Which people? For great is Yahweh and most worthy of praise. And this one isn't just to fill in the blank. Worthy of praise from whom? From everyone. Psalm 33 says, Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the people of the world revere him. All of us. I love that Paul says in Romans 10, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? I want all the earth to hear, but they have to hear from us. They have to hear from us. I can't pick and choose. I don't get to. We had an interesting conversation as we were making Christmas cookies. It started with Megan and Elsie, neither of whom are here today because they're both dealing with illnesses. But but they were talking about Christ and his empowerment of women, and and Megan said he's like the ultimate example of healthy masculinity, of non-toxic masculinity, the good version of masculinity that's supportive of women, because he wasn't trying to support women. He just supported every human being, and he treated women like human beings. He didn't pick and go, all right, well, I need to necessarily reach out to you, because on account of you need special reaching outness. He wasn't trying to to be woke or politically correct, and he wasn't trying to be politically incorrect. He wasn't trying to overthrow specific sociological issues of the day. Everybody wanted him to. There's some people that wanted him to work with overthrowing the religious people that are having problems. I want you to overthrow the Romans. I want you to overthrow the rich. I want you to get rid of the poor. I want you to He didn't come to deal with specific sociological issues. He wanted to change our perspectives on every issue, every single thing that we interact with. He's like, yeah, change the way you think about that. Well, I think that's a bit much, Kevin. Is it? Did he talk about banking issues at all? Taxes and your take on taxes. Did he talk about sex at all? Did he talk about divorce? He talked about sex, politics, and money, the things we're never supposed to talk about if we want to make friends, right? talked about everything. He talked about how to fish and look at your perspectives on fishing. He wanted to change our perspectives on everything. He was trying to change everything, shatter the entire system of this world. We keep wanting to say, "Yeah, yeah, I want you to fix this. I want you to fix this part." And my Jesus who I have in a special picture frame, this Jesus is like this and he likes this and he gets rid of these social ills jesus says i want everything to reflect god every part of everything so when he reached out to women it wasn't because he was feeling some sort of quota he said well you're breathing you're a human you're a child of god you're you have a spirit soul i love you go thou and do likewise He says we should be reaching out to women as well as men, children as well as adults, elderly as well as those arguably in the prime of their lives. Do you see those in Scripture? He wants us reaching out and embracing the poor and the downtrodden. Do you see that? And Pharisees and synagogue rulers. Do you see that? He wants to be reaching out to rich people and religious leaders and beggars. We see all of those. He wants us to be reaching out and embracing good Jews and Roman centurions and Roman collaborators and Ethiopian eunuchs and Samaritan women and Galilean fishermen. Do we see these? All these different people. He wanted us to be reaching out and and embracing adulteresses. He wanted us to be reaching out and embracing Gentiles. He wanted us to be embracing lepers. He wanted us to be reaching out and embracing demon-possessed tomb dwellers. Do you see that in Scripture? He wanted us to be reaching out and embracing the most sinful people we could find while never embracing their sin. I will absolutely love and accept you, which means I will not love and accept necessarily every toxic thing that you do, every sinful thing that you do. But he wanted us to be reaching out to flat earthers and LGBTQ activists and cops and firefighters and women and men and children and black people and brown people, white and yellow and red and plaid. He wanted us to be reaching out to everybody, not to be diverse, but because Jesus loves every single one of us and died to save every single one of us. Not to be making some sort of sociological statement, but because we all have souls. Not to fill up quota, but because, well, when you think of it that way, isn't that disempowering to people? If I said the only reason I talked with Nikki is I haven't talked to somebody short yet today. So I looked for somebody short, and now I talked with Nikki, so I've met that quota. Is that empowering to Nikki, or is that dismissive and insulting to Nikki? I talked to Nikki because I like her. There's a difference there, right? Jesus says, well, I reach out to you guys because I care about you, not just as check marks that make me feel like I've accomplished something." He's all about empowering everybody, just not in themselves, but in God. Because when we repent, it's not about it's not about embracing all those past sins just vicariously. I don't do it anymore. But let me tell you, I used to make so much money as a drug dealer. You go, "Well, you're still enjoying it. Stop it." Or looking back and saying, I'm such a horrible person, I'm such a horrible person, I was such a horrible person. When you repent, you turn away from that and you face Christ, and it's it's focusing not on what you once were, but on what you can be, what you were always sculpted to be, and give God the glory for that. That has to include everybody. It has to include all nations, violent Israeli nationalists and rapacious Hamas terrorists. I love the prayer that Bill shared earlier. You know, pray for these people who are suffering and pray for these people who have done atrocities. Not pray that they get justice. Oh, sure, there's nothing wrong with that. But praying that they find Christ somehow in this. Because there's only two kinds of people in the world, right? Those who are my brother and sister in Christ and those whom I genuinely wish to be. Everybody reached out to, embraced, even if their actions and their choices should not be embraced. The people are, because genuinely, Jesus genuinely reconciled all people to himself through himself when he bled on the cross, extending his peace, just not the peace that the world is looking for. We don't get to pick and choose. I mean I remember Paul says in Colossians. Once you, you guys as well, were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Somebody somewhere could very easily have just decided that you weren't worth it, couldn't they? You're an enemy of God. You're standing against him. God says, well, you're an enemy of mine, but when I look at you, I don't see an enemy. I see somebody I want to reach out to. You see you as an enemy. But now, Paul says, he has completely reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. He wants to do that for everyone. He wants us to share that with everyone. Jesus said that while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, but he also looked at his his followers, to us as Christians, and he said, but you guys are the light of the world. So let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Your light reflecting Christ's light. So before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told all of his followers go and make disciples of all nations. Which nations? All. All nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Give all nations the opportunity to hear, so that all nations have the opportunity to call on God. Give them all the opportunity to learn, to decide for themselves that Jesus is the Lord and Savior who's reaching out to them and touching their hearts. Just share what you've learned. Reflect God's light that you've been given. You don't have to generate that light. It's just... It's already in you. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. You've got God's light in you. Just don't thwart that. Don't put it under a bushel basket. Shine that to everyone. Love those that God has given you as your next-door neighbor. Just go next door. That's what happened at Bethlehem, isn't it? The angels just went next door and pronounced this. The the shepherds went next door and found them. They went banging on doors after that. God spent a lifetime of man next door alongside us, Emmanuel, loving all of us. And then God gives us the opportunity to see his glory and accept it, or not. To receive his peace, or not. To be reconciled to him, or not. And for those who do accept him, he gave us the opportunity to shine his truth, to reflect that to everyone else next door. Now, I'm Scottish, and I'm German that means that genetically I am predisposed to think that all this ultimately comes down to bread. Clearly, it comes back to bread. It's Born in house of bread. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 6. I know i bounced around to a lot of verses, but in my heart I always like to go through a chunk. There's an extended bread analogy that you may never have realized is an extended bread analogy in John chapter 6. He just talks about bread so much. In John chapter 6, verse 3, we're told that Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, and the Jewish Passover feast was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, one of his disciples, Where are we going to get bread? Where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? The first part of the bread analogy. But he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Because, hint, it's not really about bread. It's an analogy, it's a metaphor. Anyway, it's not really about the bread. Passover is coming. And Jesus says, hey, guy, people need bread to live. Where where, where are they going to get the bread that they really need? And Philip, being a bean counter, answered him, eight months wages. Couldn't buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Spent all of his brain power to count up why Jesus couldn't possibly provide bread. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish in his lunchbox. I don't know how... Far they're going to go, but it's a better response. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. And Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Because technically, it wasn't just Philip that missed the point. Technically, even Andrew missed the point. Because they both were thinking that Bread's going to come from the wages that you put in your in your savings and checking account, or or I don't know maybe 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 bread will come from this little kid's lunchbox. But the point that Jesus was trying to make, he's the source of the bread. He's always been the source of the bread. It's like where are we going to get bread? I don't know. Ser- Seriously, where are we going to get bread? I don't know. Okay, fine. Well, I found a lunchbox. Great, great. In verse 22, we're told the next day, so this is, this is John saying, this is all part of his story. The next day, verse 23, some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, which is an interesting detail. He's like, I want you to know this is the same bread place. They did the bread thing, and then the next day, they're in the bread place with the bread people again. And Jesus taught the people, verse 27 don't work for food that spoils you know like bread because this isn't about the actual bread but for food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give you because he's actually the source of bread on him god the father has placed his seal of approval and then they asked him well what must we do to do the work that god requires because that's what we always do is all right what do i have to do what do i have to do to get this and jesus says well the work of god is this believe in the one he has sent We talked about that at length last week, didn't we? Your work isn't work. Your work is faith. You're saved by faith, not by works. Now, that should yield works. But your work is faith. John says it. Jesus says it. Paul says it. Peter says it. Your work is faith, not work. Yeah, but I mean, I got to work to retroactively earn this. No, you don't. I got to work to show that I'm actually redeemed. No, you don't, but you should. So they asked him, well, okay, what if, if, if we're supposed to believe, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? Show us something to prove that we should have faith, which by the way, kind of defeats the purpose. Faith, The whole point of faith is believing more than you can just see that's been proven to you. If it's been proven to you, you don't have to have faith, you just know it. But anyway, prove it to me. What will you do? Our forefathers, for instance, ate manna in the desert as it's written back in exodus he gave them bread from heaven to eat now we're back to the bread thing again you say we shouldn't be working for bread that's spoiled what about the manna And he's like yes it's spoiled but you didn't have to work for that either yeah goober implied in the greek jesus said to them i tell you the truth it's not moses who gave you the bread Moses who'd given you that bread from heaven. No, no, it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And that may seem like a small detail, but it's really huge. Because they always think, ah, Moses gave us manna. And he's like, no, he didn't. He just pointed it out. He explained it to you. God gave you manna. The father gave you bread from heaven. And it's God that will always be giving you bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, to the whole world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And they're clearly talking about two different kinds of bread. They're like, bread, okay, manna. No, no, bread from heaven. Oh, oh, so you have other bread. Okay, where's this bread? You know, no, it's not dropping from the sky like manna. It's not endlessly streaming from the cornucopia of some little kid's lunchbox. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. That's the bread that we actually need. Jesus is the manna that fills us. Jesus is a daily bread that sustains us. That's at least as much the reason why he's born in a place called House of Bread as the fact that it was the town of David. House of Bread, where not only a king was born, but where... Even a Moabitess from Moab can glean more than she could ever ask or imagine because the Redeemer loved her. It's a place that reminds us that all people, all nations, everyone, all people are loved by God. It's a place that reminds us that if the field belongs to the people of God, there's always gleaning for everyone. A few verses later, Jesus says again, I tell you the truth in verse 47, he who believes will have everlasting life not he who believes and acts like me or he who has enough merit or he who is the sort of person i already like but he who believes because i am the bread of life and that's the crucial part it's not about doing x or y or being a or b it's about eating the right bread and there's only one bread that can give you eternal life only one name under heaven by which we must be saved and it's free it's free bread For everyone. People might say that's elitist, but it's free bread. And he tells us, go out and give everybody this bread. So why isn't everybody saved? Willingness, right? Not everybody's willing to accept it. And not everybody's willing to go out and tell them where the bread is. verse 49 he says your forefathers ate that manna in the desert but they still died but here's the bread that comes down from heaven which a man may eat and not die i am the living bread that comes down from heaven if anyone if who anyone if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever that's the bread that gives life to all nations given that night in bethlehem in the house of bread for everyone that's what the angels are proclaiming in triumph in the night skies so joyful all ye nations rise and join the triumph of the skies. Remember what we said so many times. It's not that we're better as Christians or or more automatically uh, shiny and good. Because we're all just beggars looking for bread, aren't we? The only difference is that Christians have found it. And we're not told to sit there in a in a room with a bunch of bread and eat it. We're told that that bread is always there for us. So we need to go out and tell all the beggars where to find bread. All of them. It is neither our prerogative nor our privilege to be able to decide which beggars we reach out to. And it's awfully tempting. It's awfully tempting to say, oh, I want to reach out to everybody, Uh, maybe not him. All beggars everywhere still need to eat. I've never been a huge fan of the idea of a New Year's resolution. If you want to change something, change it. Don't Don't wait till New Year's. And yet, it is a new year. And if you want 2024 to be different than 2023 in your life, can I encourage us just to make it a year where we actively choose to hand out bread to everyone else, to everyone else, not from a position of privilege, I'm special, not stintingly, not not preferentially, but as beggars feeding beggars. One beggar showing other beggars where to find food. To, To make sure that with the angelic hosts, we proclaim the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, and born to give them second birth. That's what I want to do. That's what we can all do. Technically, it's what we're all always doing. Can we do it well? Can we do it consciously? Can we do it in such a way that it actually reflects God and remove the bushel basket that's covering? Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your extended bread analogy. (laughs) Extended bread analogy. Starts way back in Ruth. John 6 just goes through all sorts of different elements of it. Starts before Ruth and with manna coming from heaven. Starts before that because you created the, the wheat in the fields. You created the fields. In the beginning, you were with God and you were God. And that word said, let there be light. Let there be fields. Let there be grain. Let there be manna. Let there be I pray, Lord, speak your word in us and through us. Change us. Fill us with your spirit and let that spirit just overflow into all those around us. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.